I'm Jeffrey Lewis, and you're listening to The Deal. This podcast series started with an interview with my friend, Corey Hinderstein, who was the first person to publicly identify Iran's uranium enrichment plant at Natanz, starting the very public nuclear crisis that has stretched for almost 20 years. Back then, Corey was a precocious but very junior researcher at a think tank, and I was just a graduate student. But this is one of those moments in history that shapes the rest of your life. For me, as a graduate student, I stood by helplessly watching the United States use the threat of an Iraqi nuclear weapon to justify the invasion of Iraq, the biggest foreign policy disaster of my lifetime, and something that has shaped everything for me since. The invasion of Iraq led me to make the spread of nuclear weapons the focus of my professional life. And the ensuing carnage made clear to me that solving these problems with force only makes things worse. Back then, like I said, I was a graduate student. The only people who listened to me were my friends. And, well, sometimes I think they got a little bored, too. Today, I write books and articles, do news interviews, and make podcasts like the one you're listening to. So I'll be damned if I stand by helplessly watching the U.S. repeat the mistakes of Iraq in its next-door neighbor, Iran. Now, a lot of people opposed to the Iran nuclear deal deny they want to invade Iran. But whenever there's a diplomatic solution on the table, they seem to find all its faults. But they don't scrutinize violence in the same way. They don't ask what might go wrong. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Hi, my name is Dan Lamoth. I'm a staff writer with The Washington Post. I've covered the U.S. military for a couple of different publications since 2008. In January 2020, Dan covered a missile attack that some consider to be the greatest military crisis of the Trump administration. Maybe you remember it? This is an NBC News special report. Good evening. We're coming on the air with breaking news of multiple attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. Iran has launched more than a dozen ballistic missiles. Missile attack targeting U.S. forces. Iran has launched multiple missiles at Iraq's al-Assad airbase that is northwest of... Iran fired about a dozen ballistic missiles at an American airbase at Ain al-Assad in Iraq. For a moment, it looked like the two countries were headed toward an all-out war. After a spate of headlines, it washed through the news cycle. But Dan wasn't quite ready to let it go. He turned back to the story a year later. I always wonder with these sorts of stories, you know, just due diligence, I'll reach out, and you never know what the answer is going to be. Some people really want to talk about a day like this. Some people never want to talk about it ever again. In this case, I was struck by the number of people who came, a single email, a single voice message, whatever, and responded pretty quickly and seemed pretty grateful to have a platform to tell their story. If you're just finding the deal, season one tells the story of the Iran nuclear deal, how Obama reached a legacy-defining diplomatic achievement, and how Trump tore it up. I'm a professor who studies nuclear proliferation. That's just a fancy way of saying the spread of nuclear weapons. For me, the Iran nuclear deal was a really big deal, a sign that we can still do big things together, that we can work with other countries to use diplomacy to solve our problems rather than war. Shows what I know. 
When Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal, it didn't just piss off Twitter and empower Iran. It also fundamentally shifted the American approach away from diplomacy and toward a strategy with what I like to call three prongs. Pressure, pressure, and more pressure. But now, Joe Biden is in charge. And in season two of the deal, we've been exploring his options when it comes to Iran and its nuclear program. What we have done before and how that can inform what we do next. This is our final episode, the worst case scenario, almost. Let's go back in time to the end of the before times, those last days and weeks before the pandemic. A SARS-like virus, which has infected hundreds in China, has now reached the United States. We begin tonight with the growing concern as the toll from that deadly coronavirus now grows. The mystery virus started here in the city of Wuhan. Even though the world was about to change dramatically, at that last moment, it was still business as usual between the United States and Iran. Things were heating up and pressure was building, like a kettle on a stove, about to whistle. The United States, under the Trump administration, had pulled out of the nuclear deal that the Obama administration had signed. And they had also uh, ramped up sanctions on Iran. Iran responded with, with a series of various kinds of attacks, just things that, like, kind of to show their displeasure. Trump didn't just kill the deal with Iran. He also instituted a strategy called maximum pressure, designed to break the Iranian regime. Iran obviously was not thrilled with this approach. A lot of the tension played out in Iraq, where the two countries are fighting through proxies for control of the country. As a result, all throughout 2019, militia supported by Iran were launching pretty regular rocket attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. While that's not great, rocket and mortar attacks are actually pretty par for the course in a war zone. It, it can be an annoyance more than anything else. An annoyance, except when it's not. On December 27, 2019, one of those rocket attacks killed a man named Nawrez Hamid, an American civilian working as an interpreter on a U.S. military base in Iraq. He was 33 and had two kids. Hamid's death is a turning point because the Trump administration decided to retaliate. Breaking news from the Middle East, where a U.S. drone strike killed one of Iran's most powerful military leaders overnight. President Trump said this was meant to stop a war, not start one, but Iran's already threatening to retaliate. The U.S. killing of top Iranian General Soleimani brings up a major question. What now? Valley Nasser, former senior advisor... In January 2020, the United States launched a drone strike on several vehicles just outside the Baghdad airport. One of those vehicles was carrying an Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was the head of something called the Quds Force, which are sort of Iran's special forces operating abroad. He was very famous. Some people even thought he might be Iran's next president. At one level, Soleimani is the person ultimately responsible for the rocket attack that killed Hami. But he's also pretty high up. Killing him is an escalation. Trump couldn't let the killing of Hamid go. Iran couldn't let the killing of Soleimani go either. It seemed pretty clear Iran wasn't going to just let that lie. 
kettle whistling. Al-Assad Air Base is in western Iraq, in the Ambar province. And Anbar province is smack dab in the middle of the Iraqi desert. On any given day, over a thousand people live at the airbase. For them, this was home. If you were to drive around the base, you'd see helicopters, you'd see mechanics at work on aircraft, you'd see people going to the gym, you'd see people going to the chow hall. Uh, you know, it's kind of you, you do your job and then you take some time off, you watch some TV. It's that sort of feel. I saw al-Assad as an appealing target for Iran in a couple ways. One is it was a known large U.S. base, so it's got some symbolism in that regard. You know, it's a base that people who have followed the war have talked about for years on and off. They weren't striking some random remote location that had a handful of troops. This was a major uh, American position in Iraq. And most importantly, it is a major base for U.S. drones. Drones, including the ones that killed Qasem Soleimani. All the reporting I've done talking to people who were there that day, there had been sort of this unsettled sense for what might come. And once the word reached al-Assad, they were pretty certain that was going to be a target at some point in the coming hours. The United States started scrambling to protect as many people as they could. heard a lot of them tell me that they had they had just gone to dinner and then sort of after dinner things changed very very abruptly you know they were called into unexpected meetings and given orders to do various things that seemed pretty striking go get your armor go get your gas masks and then some of them were sent out you know literally you're getting on an aircraft in the next hour you had a lot of people rushing out. I've heard stories of people, you know, scrambling to find a seat on an aircraft. I know in one case, I'm hearing about the, the Ospreys. Those are aircraft that sort of have a hybrid helicopter, airplane look. They often will hold maybe maybe a couple dozen people in the back. They were stuffing 40 and 50 into the back of that aircraft. They're using everything they can. They're literally doing back-of-the-envelope calculations to say, What's the weight limit on this aircraft? And let's fill it as much as we can. The underlying piece of that is, if you're sent out in that sort of scenario, you're leaving with the sense that, depending on how bad this is, you might be coming back to identify your friends. Iran's decision to use ballistic missiles, 30, 40 foot long missiles carrying, you know, in excess of a thousand pounds of explosives. Every time one of those that can leave these massive 20, 30-foot craters, just a, a towering infernos. Um, and not to mention that the massive concussion on any explosion that size. You know, that, that's something that's absolutely crippling for the people nearby. They wanted to protect the base. They couldn't leave the base outright. So for those who were left behind, they prepared as best they could. They had their armor, they had their gas masks, and what kind of shelter they had actually varied a great deal based on where they were on base and which unit they were in. Some of them were in these large, hardened buildings that probably could withstand a lot, maybe not a direct hit, but could withstand a lot. Other people were in open-air shelters that would have been appropriate for smaller explosions like a rocket, but like there's just no way you're going to be able to survive that kind of thing if the missile lands too close. 
I think that was something that I didn't have a full appreciation of until I started talking to people who survived. This is a situation where people kind of made peace. They were praying, they were writing letters, they were calling loved ones in the moments they had. People sent home sort of last messages to their children. If I don't make it kind of feel to those messages. And then there's this sinking dread. You know it's probably coming tonight and, and you've got an hour. you got a half hour. And then at some point you hear over an intercom, incoming, incoming. And then you've got a matter of minutes or less. The missile started landing after 1 a.m. They came sort of sporadically, landing four, five, six at a time for a while. Some of the individuals were actually knocked out, not once, but multiple times. Once you start coming to, there were people who had horrendous ears ringing. There was vomiting. There were people that were pretty well knocked flat on their back for a while. I think in terms of when did the missile stop, I mean, it was a couple hours. In terms of when did they know for certain they were safe, a lot of them told me that even when daybreak occurred 5, 6 a.m., they were still very leery of leaving those shelters. And then when you actually emerge slowly, just seeing your home, literally your home at this point, I mean, you've been there for months in many cases, just absolutely devastated. The interview that sticks with me the most, I think, is a member of the Minnesota National Guard, Major Alan Johnson. He was a medical professional on the base. His clinic was blown up. He was knocked out multiple times. Then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, you got to treat all these people who have concussions. Meanwhile, you yourself are not well. He's one of the individuals who has to take care of others based on being a medical professional on base. He himself described this sense of like exhaustion. You're working in a makeshift clinic because yours is gone. You're literally having to clean up things on the ground to find stuff you need. Finally, after a couple of days, as help arrived on the medical side, somebody came across him and noticed the flag on his uniform was all wrong, which is not something that somebody who's been in the military for years would ever screw up. But in this case, he was just not quite right. And he, too, was evacuated at that point. Things at the base were frightening and chaotic. But from Washington, they looked different. The Trump administration in Washington, the initial reports they got said, nobody's dead uh, and there are no serious injuries. While it is true that no one was dead, there were casualties. Pretty soon it was clear that there were lots and lots of serious injuries. Dealing with TBIs, they're unpredictable and the symptoms don't always show up right away. You're dealing with the human brain and, and all of its marvels, but also it's a very sensitive system. Traumatic brain injuries are no joke. But still, even with our modern medical understanding and lots of coverage in sports, it can be very hard to get some people to take concussions seriously. I heard that they had headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious. That's the message 
the American people got from the president about Ayn al-Assad. All is well, just a few headaches. This was a cycle of revenge killings that started with the death of an innocent person. And Trump had made it clear if even one more American were killed, he would retaliate again. So administration officials struggling to keep things from getting out of hand had good reasons to try to minimize the damage of the strike. And by some miracle, no one was killed. Even so, the two countries were still at the cusp of war. Did we just get lucky? We've as the Washington Post heard out senior U.S. officials who said it is their belief it could not have been an accident. I've heard out other officials that see a lot more luck involved. And this is relatively senior people. I mean, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, came out in the aftermath of this attack, and he certainly sounded like he thought they were trying to kill people. For what it's worth, the Iranians announced that the missiles had killed lots of American soldiers. They didn't seem worried about it. I got the sense over and over again that this whole thing felt very arbitrary to the people on the ground. Just so much luck above all, and people just walking away from this saying, I can't believe I survived. But not everyone was so lucky, because things did get out of hand. The violence did spill over. In the middle of this, you have this horrendous civilian tragedy. That morning, as American soldiers were picking up the pieces at Ain al-Assad, a civilian airliner took off from the airport outside of Tehran, carrying 176 people to Kiev in Ukraine. Almost immediately, an Iranian missile crew, on alert, waiting for the U.S. retaliation, made a terrible, terrible mistake and shot it down. They had confused the plane with an American cruise missile. The cycle of violence claimed another 176 people, innocent men, women, children, all of whom died as the plane hit the ground. They had no involvement in the attack. They had no connection whatsoever to any of these events. And Iran had to own that. It did seem to maybe have a de-escalatory effect, people kind of easing off the guns there for a few days afterward. It was a ghastly error and a cruel blow to the families who had nothing whatsoever to do with the nuclear weapons program in Iran or the fighting in Iraq. Trump crowed about his victory, killing an Iranian general at the cost of what he called a few headaches. And Iranians, consumed with grief and anger, weren't really in a mood to argue with him. The crisis stalled, and then as the pandemic hit, everyone moved on. There is a sense that it has already been forgotten by the average American, that when it happened and nobody did die, it's easy to kind of just wipe off the news broadcasts, wipe off the front page, and move on. But when you make a decision in a situation room somewhere, there are regular people with regular families and children and everything else that have to deal with the consequences. This was not some textbook case of coercive diplomacy. It was a fiasco. The United States and Iran basically engaged in a series of revenge killings, stumbling arm in arm right up to the brink of a full-scale war. And they avoided it only by one miraculous stroke of dumb luck, followed by the terrible loss 
of almost 200 innocent people. The situation could easily have spiraled into a full-scale war. As it was, it spilled over. An interpreter killed, a general assassinated, hundreds of servicemen and women wounded, and finally, an airliner full of dead people. And we call this lucky. It's a warning. It's a warning about what happens when we can't find ways to solve our problems with diplomacy. All these people dead and injured, nothing is different. We didn't solve a thing. At the beginning of this season, I introduced you to Roger Fisher, who wondered, why are we like this? Why do we prefer the confrontational approach? I don't know that we got any closer to answering that question, and I'm not sure it does have an answer. But I do know this. We can do better, right? The Deal is produced by me, Jeffrey Lewis, along with Aaron Davis, Juliette Luini, and Nikki Stein. Our original score is by Hannes Brown, who also mixes the episodes. Special thanks to Jessica Varnum, the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and Middlebury College. If you liked The Deal, tell a friend to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more takes on this issue and related news as it breaks, you can always follow me on Twitter, at ArmsControlWong. I'm Jeffrey Lewis. Thanks for listening.